And so we are finishing up the book of Acts this morning. And that's always a bittersweet moment because we've spent a number of months traveling through this book. And we've gotten to know the characters. We've gotten to know the storyline. And, and yesterday or, or Friday, um, rather, I put all my Acts commentaries back on the shelf and getting ready for our next sermon series. Uh, just kind of quickly to give you a little heads up on where we're heading. For the next couple of weeks, we'll be in the Psalms. Uh, I'm going to preach next week, and then we're going to hear from a few other people within our church um, from the Psalms. And then come the fall, we're going to jump into the Lord's Prayer, and I'm very excited for that. i got a stack of books on my desk now that I've been reading about the Lord's Prayer. So very much looking forward to that. But with that, as we come to the end of the book of Acts, I can't help but be reminded of the beginning of God's story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, the people of Israel and most ancient cultures saw the waters or the sea, similar to what Tara brought up this morning, as a place of chaos and danger. In the creation story, those words, formless and void, to teach you a little bit of Hebrew, tohu vavohu, it's a fun word to say, they have been translated as invisible and unformed. One scholar says topsy-turvy is a way to articulate those words. So what we're looking at, the face of the deep, is a place of darkness and unknown terror. But it's also the place where the Spirit of God hovers and in a sweeping moment of redemptive glory without any exertion or struggle, an important distinction from other ancient creation accounts, the God of the universe shines light into the darkness. And not only does he shine light into the darkness, he brings order and beauty to the chaos. That's what God does. God brings order and beauty to the chaos. And, and we have been surrounded by so much chaos. Human history is marked by chaos. Yet the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. And as we conclude our time in the book of Acts, that same Spirit continues to hover over the chaos, regularly creating beauty from ashes. Right? The book began with the resurrection of our Lord as he presented himself alive to them after his suffering marking the beginning of spirit-filled new creation. Chapters 1 through 7 showed us the first coming of the Spirit as the new covenant people of God were given power from heaven, a power which came to a head when a spirit-filled man, Stephen, was stoned to death for his faithful witness. And from that dark and seemingly chaotic moment, a murderer was changed. In the words of Charles Wesley, Saul's eye diffused a quickening ray. He awoke and his dungeon was flamed with light. At the same time, the horizontal divisions between Jew and Gentile were being broken down as Cornelius and his entire household were supernaturally brought into the family of God. 
Chapters 13 through 20 taught us about the Christian life and mission through the work of another faithful witness, the Apostle Paul, who suffered much for the sake of the name of Jesus. A suffering, though, that was coupled with the regular presence of God in his life through both the Spirit and the people of God. And then the final chapters of Acts take a man who was falsely imprisoned, similar to our Lord, who stood trial before another Herod, Herod Agrippa, and who under the providence of God was safely brought through many dangers, toils, and snares so that he might take the good news of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, Rome. And so that's where we've been over the last number of months. And and my prayer is that it was an encouragement and a challenge to us as we traveled through that book. What I would encourage you to do in your community groups or just with one another is to kind of talk about what were the things that really stood out to me during this series? And, And how have I applied those to my own life? And so let's jump in. We're going to look at chapters 27 and 28. Two chapters, not as many as I gave you, Pete, but still, you know, a lot, to be fair. 27 through 28 we're going to be looking at. And you can follow the simple outline that is uh, in the bulletin that was given to you when you came in on the right side. And on the left is a portion of the text, but we're not going to have the whole text in there. So you can pull out your Bibles or grab your Bible app on your phone. So the first section, he took bread. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 44. And for this first section, I'm going to simply walk through the story of Paul's journey, camping out here and there and explaining a couple things. So here we go. It says this, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, and notice the we there, so Luke is on this trip, we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And so really quick, an important thing that kind of just jumps off the page. This, this, this centurion, Julius, is treating Paul kindly. And so what does that tell us about Paul? None other than that the favor of God is upon Paul right now. We're seeing that, that the favor of God is upon Paul. Why? Because he has a job to do. He has to make his way to Caesar to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to fulfill the great commission that the gospel might go to the ends of the earth. And the text continues, and putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, the favor of God is on Paul, but the powers and authorities are not. The favor of God is on Paul, but the powers and authorities are not, meaning that the winds were against them. Nature did not necessarily want Paul to complete his mission. Oh, but God controls the seas. God controls the winds. Let's continue walking through because that's going to be a major theme as we finish up the book of Acts, that God is sovereign. He controls all things, everything, all of creation is, is, is controlled by the word of God. And so it continues. And we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. And we came to Myra in Lyca, Ly- Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off 
Sinaitis, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along, it was with, it, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. It, it almost seems as if Paul has some insider information. Let's see what happens here. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Now, I'm not a sailor. I absolutely have no idea what's really happening here. I looked up a couple of things, like how do you undergird a boat, and there were some diagrams and stuff, and I kind of said, like, you know what, I'm just going to assume that they were doing the best they can to not die, and that seemed good enough for me, so I went with that because I have no idea what they're talking about right now, and so it continues. I lost my spot because I was making jokes. Um, <laughs> run around, lowered, undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run around on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They were throwing the cargo off the ship. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And, and immediately what comes to mind as I was reading this text is Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, where they did something very similar. They were unloading the cargo because they were being storm-tossed. Because a man who was called to go to the Gentile nation decided, nah, I'm not going to do that. And he ran away from his mission. He ran away from his mission. And so what does God do? He brings a storm. But interestingly enough, what we have here is, is somewhat of an anti-Jonah who also was called to, to pursue the Gentile nations, and he runs toward that mission. But the seas are still against him, but God is for him. That's key. Again, God is for him. God is the one that is controlling all of the circumstances. And while the circumstances might think they're in charge, and we've experienced that, We've experienced that when we look at politics, when we look at the world around us, everyone seems to think that they're in the driver's seat. Little do they know that they're all in submission to Almighty God. They're all in submission to Almighty God. And that's what we mean when we talk about the powers and the authorities. I bring that up a lot, and we talked about that about a year ago when we were in the book of Ephesians. We talked about the powers and the authorities and how they, they are trying to divide this world. And make no mistake of it, they are trying to divide this world, and they operate through human, um, human, human beings. Let's go. I couldn't think of a better word than human beings. I think that works. And, but the point is, is that there's a spiritual war out there because, right, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so we need to understand that, that, that the world is against us, not because people are just like horrible people, although we are born sinful, but 
But the powers and authorities have their grips in them. But we have the Spirit of God, and we serve the King over all of the universe, over all of creation, who's actually the one in charge, even though others might believe themselves to be. So the anti-Jonah here, verse 19, and on the third day they threw the ships tackle overboard with their own hands, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And then what happens is this great I told you so moment. Because we all know that when you're doing something wrong and it doesn't work out, you always want someone to say, I told you so. And so that's what Paul does. He says, I told you so. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up and said to them, men, you should have listened to me. You should have listened to me. I knew what I was talking about and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And when the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. They're measuring. They're trying to see how deep the water is, I think. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and prayed for a day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, And had lowered the ship's boats into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. I know I'm reading a lot of text this morning, but it's a story. It's a narrative. So we got to kind of see how it moves forward. So what's going on? First thing, Paul notices that they had been without food for a long time. Not because they didn't have any but because they didn't want any, right? Have you ever been so overwhelmed and so stressed that you couldn't eat? It's kind of what's going on here, but there's a little bit more going on here. Beverly Gaventa, New Testament scholar, she says this, the lack of food both symbolizes and provokes the hopelessness of those on board, that those without hope have no reason to seek the sustenance of food. That those without hope have no reason to seek the sustenance of food. Another thing comes up, this, this concept of divine necessity. We've talked about this a few times throughout the book of Acts. And the faith of Paul to speak up. These are the things that serve as the means by which physical salvation will come to the crew and prisoners of this ship. But the crew doesn't trust the words of the prophet. Crew doesn't trust the words of the prophet. And so what we have going on here is, a, is kind of a small picture of, of a divine promise given and the necessity of faith on the part of those who hear the promise. See, see this is that, that, that classic sort of God is sovereign, but humanity is responsible. God is sovereign, but humanity is responsible. So the promise is given in verses 21 through 26 where Paul hears from the angel of the Lord. And he speaks forth this promise to the people. And he has faith. 
But what ends up happening is that the crew, notice, they try to escape. They try to lower the boats. They try to sneak off because they're terrified that they might die. And Paul says to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. See, see, this is our story. This is our story. See, unless we follow Jesus... Right? The promise is given, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting, everlasting life. The promise is given, but unless we believe, we cannot be saved. And now we can get into this whole debate about, about Calvinism and how, how the Spirit of God regenerates us. And yes, amen, this is a Reformed church and we believe that, but still that doesn't negate the fact that we have human responsibility to believe and trust in our Lord and Savior for salvation. And so if you're sitting here and you've heard those words, but you've never actually stepped into the boat or, or you've tried to get out of the boat, see, God is calling you to come to him. God is saying, no, 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 I have a promise for you. I have everlasting life for you. Believe me, follow me, trust me, walk with me. And while it might be difficult, while you might be storm-tossed back and forth, know that I am with you. That's the beauty of the promises of God. See, it's not that we'll escape the danger. Paul clearly doesn't escape the danger. I mean, he's in a storm. He was stoned a number of months or years back. He's been persecuted left and right in every city he went to. But God was with him. See, that's the beauty of our walk with Jesus. Not that we'll be spared the pain, but that Jesus walks with us in it. That's a really big deal. That's an important truth that we have to grapple with, that we have to put our trust in, that yes, we're experiencing pain, suffering. There's nothing new about suffering, but what is new is that the God of the universe walks with us in it. And he gives us the power to walk with others who are going through it as well. Right? That's our mission, that we share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbors. So, so in the same way God walks with us through suffering, we get to walk with one another through suffering and through pain, shouldering one another's burdens. We're going to see how important that is as the text continues. But it's this concept of like fear versus faith. And, and sometimes those get intermingled because I'm sure there are plenty of times where we are afraid. But, but our faith in God is what steadies us. They can throw all the anchors they want into the sea. It's not going to help them. They need God. They need to trust in the promise of the angel of God that spoke to Paul and that Paul revealed to them. They need to trust the promise. We need to trust the promise. Massively important. The text continues, verses 33 through 36. And we're moving a little slow, and I apologize. I'm trying to not keep us here all morning. But there's a lot to cover. It's the last sermon in the series, so I'm going to do my best. As day was about to dawn... Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. 14 days, no food. Having taken nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, 
And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So there's a ton of scholarly debate about whether or not we're observing a Lord's Supper, Eucharistic sort of meal here. And while the debate is interesting, the fact of the matter is, is that Paul chose his language intentionally to remind us of the Last Supper. Jesus' story is being mapped onto Paul as it is mapped onto the church. And so again, to quote Beverly Gaventa, she says, Paul's insistence on taking food at this stage, when the very people charged with sailing the vessel have just demonstrated their own hopelessness, not eating for 14 days, trying to escape, it constitutes a sign of hope and confidence in God. Luke specifies that those who observe Paul are encouraged and then take the food. And so if it's not the bread of the Eucharist, it is certainly the bread of hope. So in other words, Paul is a conduit of resurrection hope, of new creation hope, and we need to be challenged here. See, what sort of message are we putting out into the world? What sort of ideas are we allowing to feed us that we then feed others with? Last two weeks have been pretty nuts on the news. I don't know if you've noticed. It seems like things are starting to bubble over again. When we thought everything was in our rearview mirror, all of a sudden now it's right in front of our face. And so we have options. We have options. We could, we could, we could watch the news for 24 hours a day and, and be discipled by, by pundits. Or we could encourage one another. We can, we can give hope to the world around us. We could speak the words of Jesus. We can be a conduit of resurrection hope in the same way Paul is in the midst of chaos. Or we can jump into the chaos and just allow it to knock us back and forth. Or we can try to run and escape the way those crew members tried to do. No, see, this is the time that God has ordained for us to be. It's, it is what it is. And, and there's, there's a quote from the Lord of the Rings, and I forget it, where I think it's like, uh, I think Frodo is like, like, man, I wish I wasn't born. I'm really paraphrasing this. I, I really wish I wasn't born during this time. And, and Gandalf's like, yeah, no, it, it kind of stinks that you're born during this time, but, but how are you going to respond? And that's an extreme paraphrase, extreme paraphrase. But the point is, is that we're living in the midst of what feels like chaos and turmoil. But, but the Spirit of God, one, hovers over the chaos Oh, but even better, even better. He dwells within the people of God, both individually and corporately. And so what are we allowing to shape our minds? Is it social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Because I can tell you, you're not going to get much hope there. It's not going to happen. Or we can go to the scriptures. We can be with one another. Those of you who have been deciding to stay home, I, I want to challenge you. Come and be with the people of God in this room on Sunday mornings. 
Not because we want to fill this room, but because you need to be here. You need that means of grace, that fellowship to be with one another. We need this. We can't forget that. Just because things felt like they were getting better, that's all perception. We still live on this side of glory. We still need the grace of God and the fellowship of the saints to continue this journey so that we might be conduits of hope in a world that's, that's utter chaos right now. That's what Paul is. That's what he's calling us to be as we read this text. We need to be challenged by that. I need to be challenged by that. I told Deanna the other night, text me, because I don't want to wake up and look at Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And, and it's funny, I, I opened my phone when I woke up in the morning, and I saw my wife's text, and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I made a deal. I'm not going to look at Twitter. Because I can go, if you know me, you know I'm a little bit emotional. You've seen it. And I can allow this thing up here to just run rampant if I'm not anchored to my God. And, and I'm a little ADD, so sometimes I get distracted from my God. Oh, but we need, we need Jesus so badly. We need him so badly. We need one another so badly. We're going we're gonna to keep moving here because I could talk about that all day. 28, chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. The text continues as Luke declares, we were brought safely through. Through what? The many dangers, toils, and snares of the waters and the storm. After we were brought safely through, I can't help but be reminded of the ark being brought safely through the waters. How God parted the Red Sea, bringing Israel onto dry ground while pouring out judgment on Egypt. And how Jesus himself stilled the storm and protected his disciples. We heard some of those texts read this morning. See, these baptisms, if you will, are God's way of vindicating his people, which is precisely what we see taking place in the life of Paul. The favor of God is on Paul right now. God will see us through the storm. It doesn't mean we will necessarily live to go all the way to the extreme, but we will live eternally with God. It doesn't mean we won't be battered and bruised along the way, but like I said, God goes with us. And so let's see what's going on here. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. Uh, lost my spot. Unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun. The rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. It just keeps getting better for Paul. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has not escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god, obviously. And now in the neighborhood of that place, 
were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so we see again that the, the story of Jesus and how he healed the many is starting to be mapped onto Paul. Paul is picking up where Jesus left off. But, but there's more here, right? This beaten down and battered crew of 276 people arrive on the island of Malta, about 60 miles south of Sicily, and they were met with unusual kindness and hospitality. So why the hospitality? A couple things. It could have been because their survival of the shipwreck meant that these people from Malta already believed that they might be gods because they beat the sea. Remember what the sea represents. The sea represents chaos. The sea represents terror. It's unknown. And, and, and the gods control the sea, and, and, and Paul beat the sea. Also, though, there is again in front of us God's favor being displayed. But what about this snake bite? Paul experiences a snake bite or a viper bite. The natives believe Paul to be a murderer and that this judgment was coming from the goddess justice. But Paul just shakes the creature off into the fire and suffers no harm. And so the natives believe him to be a god. And so what's the point here? Once again, we're seeing God's vindication of Paul. He has been taken through the waters and survived. And now a serpent attacks him, leaving him with maybe a flesh wound while the snake is killed in the fire. Theologian William James Jennings sums this up beautifully. He says this, They imagined that the bite had to be confirmation that Paul was a killer, who even now would not escape Lady Justice. They were right. Paul was a killer. But he was inside a different providence. Justice was taking its course, but Paul was living inside of a different justice. In other words, the snake was right. The snake was right, and he often is as the accuser of the brethren, but Paul's murdering self has been taken care of at the cross where the judgment of sin was poured out upon Jesus. Maybe we can even hear an echo of Genesis 3 that while this serpent delivered merely a flesh wound, a lethal blow came upon its head. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. And Romans tells us that God will crush the enemy under our feet. Oh, there's something going on here. Something else is going on here too, though. Because like I said, the serpent was right. Paul was a murderer. And the serpent's right when he, when he tells us and reminds us about our sins. He's right. When he accuses us and says, you've been guilty this week. You did something you weren't supposed to this week. You looked at something you weren't supposed to this week. You cheated someone this week. Oh, he's right. But you know where he's wrong? And now you can't go to God. Oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not how it works. See, because what happens on the cross is that our sin is dealt with. Our sin is crushed to pieces, and while we might still struggle with the accent of sin, remember, we're saints who speak in the accent of a sinner, our sin has been dealt with. 
And we can run to the cross. In fact, when we're struggling with sin, there's no better place to be than at the cross. Because that's where we draw our strength from. We need the forgiveness of God. We can't believe the lies of the serpent. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 12. It says this, verses 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night. Lost my spot. Got excited. Before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows the time is short. See, he's running out of time, Redeemer. He's running out of time, and he knows that. And so, yeah, we will experience spiritual attack. We will experience accusations. And and the accusations are true. We've sinned. We've all sinned and we continue to do so. Oh, but the grace of God. The grace of God is sufficient. And it carries us through. And it calls us to faithfulness. And it calls us to repentance. And Jesus is with us in it. Yes, we will be accused. We will experience that frustration when we're struggling with sin, but God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. The snake was right, but the grace of God is bigger. The snake was right, but the grace of God is bigger. And the text goes on. After three months, we set sail, verse 11, in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at um, Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us on seeing them Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers that guarded him. After three months, they set sail and finally ended up in a place called Puteoli. There were brothers there who let them stay for seven days, and then they ended up in Rome where more brothers came. And the verse that has been gnawing at me all week On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Because even heroes grow weary. I love this verse. Because what does it reveal to us? None other than that Paul needed the church, his brothers and his sisters in the faith from whom he drew strength for what was ahead. We need one another. If Paul needed the brothers, 
then how much more do we need one another? Again, those of you who are listening online, this is not to condemn but to encourage. You need the brothers. You need the sisters. We need you. We need one another if we're going to make it through. We need one another. See, Christianity is not me, my Bible, and Jesus. That is not Christianity. That is a caricature of Christianity that we've, we've all adopted because we're American and we're individuals, right? Ah, oh, but the Bible wasn't written in America. It wasn't. It wasn't. We need one another. We need one another so desperately. We draw grace from one another. We draw confidence from one another. This is the family of God. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Massively important. And we know this because, because our memories aren't that faded that we can't remember a year ago when we were just stuck in our houses and we couldn't have one another. And I remember those first services when we came together, man, we were packed out because we knew we needed each other. But we can't grow callous to that. We can't forget that need. The text continues, and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of blow through this last section pretty quickly because it is getting late. To the ends of the earth, verses 17 through 31. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. They were like, You can go. You're free. Go ahead. He didn't want to go free. When they had examined me, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Though I had no charge to bring against them, my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel. It's because of Jesus. Jesus is the hope of Israel. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you. you what what are your views are for with regard to this sect? We know that everywhere it is spoken against. It's, it's actually a funny scene because Paul's like super passionate. He's like, I'm here to speak of the hope of Israel. And they're like, yeah, bro, I don't, I don't, no one said anything to us. Like, we're good. No one, like, but okay, like, we'll listen. And, and so Paul gets himself into trouble. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, which is maybe what we'll do today, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about the law of, about, about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. What's the statement? This is where it gets exciting. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And Paul quotes from the Greek Old Testament here. He says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And this is where he gets himself into trouble. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. You know that dirty word that keeps coming up throughout this book? They will listen. So Paul preaches the kingdom of God. He preached Jesus. He did it in a way that revealed that this was always the plan from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some believed while others did not, which is the nature of the gospel. Some believe and some do not. And to those who did not, Paul stepped into the shoes of the great prophet Isaiah. And he quotes this section. And the interesting thing about this section, this is in the midst of Isaiah's call into ministry. Chapter 6 of Isaiah. It's his call into ministry, and this was the message he was given. Your people, your kinsmen, are not going to believe this, but you're going to tell them anyway. You're going to tell them anyway, but they're not going to believe it. Why? Because the partial hardening of the people of Israel swung the doors wide open for God's promise to Abraham to come true, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the person and work of King Jesus, the true Israel. And so the point of the book of Acts kind of lands right here, that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is obliterated, that we no longer put up walls between people who are not like us, that we no longer put up walls between people who are from a different socioeconomic class, race, or ethnicity, because the gospel obliterates that to pieces. To pieces. And that is massively important. Because we've said this before, that the gospel absolutely has to do with our relationship with God, but it also has to do with our relationships with one another. Reconciliation is the name of the game between us and God and between one another. God is bringing all nations, every tribe, every tongue at his feet to bow and worship him for all of eternity. And so if you don't like certain types of people, guess what? They're going to be in heaven and they're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to be side by side with them, rubbing shoulders with them, worshiping our king. So we should start practicing now. That's the story of Acts. And it doesn't mean that the Jews are cast aside. We learn this in Romans 9 through 11, which we don't even have remotely enough time to even touch on right this second. But the point is, is that God is doing something new and we're part of that plan. And that is an encouraging thing. That is a challenging thing. In the midst of the chaos, God is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. And so the book of Acts, as we conclude this morning, it takes place over the course of about 30 years. And in those 30 years, we saw the kingdom of God expand beyond the borders of Jerusalem into Gentile cities and ultimately to the ends of the earth as Rome was considered the center of the known world. And the gospel spread through simple yet persistent means. And its proclamation was met with obstruction, mockery, mobs, violence, and even death. But you know what else we saw? We also saw that the gospel birthed beautiful communities of faith where strangers became family 
and deep relationships were forged in the fires of persecution and suffering. We've gone through it as a church, Redeemer. If you've been here for the last two years, we've gone through it. But you know what I've noticed? I've noticed that this group have, has come together because that's what suffering does. That's what trials do. They bring us together if we decide to walk faithfully through them. And that's what I've experienced over this last year and a half, two years. That, that this people here has become family to our family. It happened. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. And I'm grateful for it. I'm so grateful for it. Because I need this people. And we all need this people. And so I walk away from this book knowing for certain three things. One, the presence of God is with us. His Holy Spirit is not only hovering, but he has indwelt us both individually and corporately, and he has empowered and equipped us for the mission to love God and neighbor. Two, this mission and path that we are now traveling on as followers of Jesus is a path that is and always will be marked by the cross. It's marked by the cross. And three, we absolutely need one another to fulfill this calling on our lives. We need one another. And so the book of Acts ends in chapter 28, but we are meant to pick up our crosses and continue the work, proclaiming the kingdom of God in both word and deed so that the world around us might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's the book of Acts. That's what we've just gone through together as a community. And this is where God is taking us, what he's calling us to. And so as we go to the table, as we participate this, in this meal, this meal that not only lets us get a foretaste of, of, of the wedding feast that we will all be a part of in glory, but also breaks down barriers between humanity, let us remember what we've been called to. Let us remember the wonder and beauty of the good news of Almighty Jesus. He is our king. He rules over all of creation. The waters of chaos have nothing on the word of God. Let there be light. And darkness was no longer a thing. He just spoke a couple words. And in the gospels, he just spoke to the storm. And that was it. He's the God we worship. Let's go to the Lord, Father in heaven. Oh, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for how you love your people and how you care for us, Lord, and how you have sustained this people here in Tom's River, Lord God. Lord, I pray, Lord, that as, as the, the coming weeks and months begin to unfold and, and whatever uncertainties might lie ahead, Father, we know what is certain. You are king, and we have been called to love you and love our neighbors, to offer words of hope and encouragement to care for people both spiritually and physically and emotionally, Lord God. This is what you've called us to, Lord. Help us to do it. Help us to be faithful, Lord God. Help these Sunday mornings to be a time where we are encouraged and challenged and enriched in our faith, Lord God. Lord, we love you with all of our heart. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the cross and for the resurrection, Lord, for what it means, Lord, our salvation, Lord God. 
I pray that we would not try to escape the boat. Lord, that we would stay firmly planted because you are with us. Lord, we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.